Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories include Remembering a Battle of Britain pilot, one of the extraordinary ordinaries, a chance meeting of two old adversaries, how a parachute packer saved a life and got a drink out of it, and a tale that Spielberg borrowed. We begin this week with this from Stephen Hawley in New Zealand. Dear Alan James, as a relatively recent arrival to your podcast, I'm thoroughly enjoying working my way through the back catalogue. The Family Stories episodes are always interesting, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, as many others have said. This epithet applies perfectly to my uncle, Sergeant Pilot Frederick Bernard Hawley, 748-286 RAF Volunteer Reserve, who flew with 266 Squadron during the Battle of Britain. He was killed on the 15th of August 1940, at the height of the battle. When I was growing up, my father, his younger brother, never ever mentioned him. The only evidence of Frederick was a framed citation of commemoration on the sideboard in the living room of my grandmother's flat, which I would look at every Saturday morning when we visited. It was just there and accepted in the way everything is accepted when you are young. After my father died in 1977, I inherited a few reminders of Frederick's life, the citation, the medals, still in the box they were posted in, and a few letters written in June and July of 1940. There's a well-known expression that people die twice, once when they take their final breath, and again when they are forgotten. So I have tried to do my best to avoid this happening to Frederick, and put together a biography of his short life. He was a typical Coventry kid of the 1920s. Born in 1917, the eldest of two boys, the family lived in a two-up, two-down terrace house in the centre of the city. Frederick left school at 15 and went to work for the local Coventry and District Cooperative Society as a grocer's assistant. Apparently, he was a good footballer, playing for the Coventry Co-op Thursday team throughout his working life. So far, so ordinary. Early in 1939, however, his life took a very different course. He joined the RAF Volunteer Reserve and learned to fly. We have no idea why. There was no history of such things in the family. Frederick enlisted in the RAF in May 1939, signing up for five years. He was awarded his flying badge in March 1940 before finally joining 266 Squadron at RAF Wittering 
on the 12th of June. He seems to have had an unlucky start. On the very next day, the operations record book notes him overshooting the aerodrome on landing. The aircraft, N3094, was badly damaged, the pilot uninjured. At the time, the squadron were flying Mark 1A Spitfires. 266 Squadron was in fact the second, after 19 Squadron, to receive Spitfires. For the next two months, the squadron took part in a large number of patrols with long flying hours. As the battle intensified, they moved bases a lot. From Wittering, they flew from Duxford on the 29th of July, from Tangmere on the 9th of August, to Hornchurch on the 14th, and from Manston on the 15th. This is perhaps an indication of the urgency of the times. They often flew to forward bases such as Manston for the day. The idea was to enable them to get into action sooner. Uncle Bernard was killed on the 15th of August 1940, at the height of the Battle of Britain. The squadron flew that day from dawn to dusk. The operations record book records 1,600 hours, six aircraft ordered off from advanced base, Manston, to intercept enemy aircraft three miles east of Deal. The enemy, an HE-115, was sighted approximately 12 miles east of Deal, flying at about 300 feet, attacked and destroyed crashing into the sea eight miles southwest of Dunkirk. Spitfire N3189, piloted by Sergeant Hawley, did not return. Last seen going into the attack by Green Leader. The 15th of August was a big day for the RAF. On that day there were 34 RAF aircraft destroyed, with 18 pilots wounded or missing. 76 German planes were reported destroyed. Churchill spent the day at 11 Group headquarters, and as he left was reputed to have said, never before have I been so moved. It was also a bad time for 266 Squadron. Dennis Armitage, who became squadron leader and survived the war, recorded that 266 Squadron started off with a full complement of pilots, about 20. But by the time we were sent back to Wittering on August the 12th, we were down to five. Thank you for the opportunity to share Frederick's story with yourselves and your listeners. For an ordinary person, Frederick did something a little bit special. He was a Battle of Britain fighter pilot. A Spitfire pilot. One of the few. I feel it is most important that the contributions of these ordinary people are not forgotten and that the information is available for future generations. My father did his bit also. He was called up in 1942 and became a tank driver in the 3rd King's Royal Hussars, driving a honey tank. Again, he talked very little about the war. From his service record, I know he served in North Africa, Palestine and Italy and was not demobbed until April 1947. Keep on podcasting. Best wishes, Stephen Hawley, Hamilton, New Zealand. Our next story comes from Tim in North California. Hello, even though this story isn't about my family, my friend suggested it was worth sharing with you. I work for a large shipping company, and a few years back I was just coming on shift at the customer service centre. When I walked in, there was an elderly gentleman working on getting a parcel ready to ship. A few moments later another gentleman came in to pick up a package. I got the package for him when I noticed he had a D-Day Omaha Beach commemorative cap on. I asked him if he was there on D-Day. He said he was. I said I couldn't begin to imagine how scary that must have been. He replied that it was, and he was a lucky one because he came in on the second wave. 
He said the group that went before him didn't even make it out of the landing craft. I was just about to thank him for his service when the other older gentleman spoke up and said in a low voice, I was at Omaha Beach also. The first gentleman smiled at him and said, Heck of a day, wasn't it? I just kept saying to myself, Get off the beach, get off the beach. What about you? What were you thinking that day? The second gentleman paused, then said, When I looked out and saw all those ships, I knew we had lost the war. After a long silence, the first gentleman asked, What did you do there? The second said, He was part of a machine gun unit. Another pause. Then the first asked, Where were you firing from? The second gentleman began to describe the beach and emplacements and where he was when the first man exclaimed, You were shooting at me! I was thinking that I should get between them when the second man loudly said, What, you were shooting at me too? Yeah, I lost some friends that day, replied the first, to which the second said, I lost all my friends that day. There was another long silence and then the first gentleman, in a calmer voice, asked, How'd you get here? He replied, After everyone got killed, I decided to run. I was told that Americans would do horrible things to the ones they caught. As I was running, I was hit and fell into a trench. I looked up and saw an American with a rifle and a bayonet looking down at me. I knew it was the end and closed my eyes, waiting. The American jumped down into the trench, but instead of bayoneting me, put a bandage on my wound, then kept going. The next thing, I was on the beach, and from there, England, and finally to a prison camp in America. In the camp, they treated me better than when I was in the army. After the war, I asked to stay in America. The first man spoke again. It was an awful war. I want a coffee. Do you want a coffee? The second man nodded, and they left together. He never did ship his package. I wish I could have listened to their conversation over coffee. I still think about that day, and I'm amazed two people who were shooting at each other in war could go out to coffee years later. Maybe there's hope for the human race after all. Thank you for your great podcast. Tim C., Northern California, USA. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. This next story is from Lawrence Cox. Dear James Al and the whole We Have Ways team, first of all, I wanted to thank you for producing what has become one of my all-time favourite podcasts. Most inspiring of all has been your Family Stories series, which really got me thinking about my own family history. I'm in my mid-30s now, and sadly all my grandparents passed away when I was in my teens and early 20s, so I never got the opportunity to have a serious talk with them about their wartime experiences. The only stories I had were snippets picked up over the years and a couple of family legends that I'm currently trying to look into in more detail. What I know so far. My paternal granddad, William Cox, who always went by his middle name, Louis, was born in 1916 in Southampton. By the 1930s, he'd moved up to London, where he joined the local TA regiment, the London Electrical Engineers, which put him in the TA's Senior Searchlight Regiment. When the war broke out, the searchlight regiments were under the umbrella of the Royal Engineers. I've attached a photo of him in RE uniform, looking like he's off to fight at Mons. In August 1914, all the anti-aircraft battalions were transferred to the Royal Artillery. He operated searchlights during the London Blitz before being sent out to North Africa. The rest of his war saw his searchlight battery travel through Africa and into Italy, where they would often deploy their searchlights in support of Royal Engineer bridge-building operations. One of the stories he did tell me was when he and his mates were sent to sit on a riverbank upstream from where a bridge was being built. They were ordered to take pot shots at anything floating down the river in case it was a German mine. He ended the war in Italy with the rank of bombardier. The officer's comment in his discharge papers indicated he'd been commanding an operational detachment and described him as a capable leader and an efficient commander. He would always take part in our village's Remembrance Sunday Parade, and I have happy memories of how proud he was that we marched together, I with my scout troop, for the 50th anniversary of VE Day in 1995. I remember him telling me that I would see the 100th anniversary, and that I would remember spending the 50th with him. We still have his medals, a 1939-45 star, Africa star, Italy star, Home Defence Medal 1939 to 1945 War Medal and an Efficiency Medal for Long Service in the TA. My paternal grandmother, my nana, Winifred Proctor, was only 17 when war was declared and very quickly enlisted with the WAF, much to her parents' consternation. In 1940, she was dispatched to RAF Bridgenorth for initial training, which proved a bit of a shock, she being an only child, suddenly bunking with 19 other girls in a wooden hut. 
teenage Winifred came out of her basic training as aircraft woman second-class Proctor WJ. In January 1942, she began working at Fighter Command HQ, responsible for supply and stock control. January 1943 found her at RAF Hawarden in North Wales, a maintenance base and factory producing Wellingtons and Lancasters, where she was responsible for obtaining equipments of all types. A year on, and she transferred again to 12 Group HQ, her records euphemistically saying that she was dealing with group problems. In November 1944, she was sent to join the British Air Forces of Occupation Operations Base at Bad Eilsen in Germany, tasked with obtaining equipment to set up and supply the new RAF bases in the British zone of occupation. She stayed there for the rest of the war, finally being demobbed in December 1945. In an article she wrote for her local RAF association about her time in the equipment branch, she said, It was a mammoth challenge, and one I enjoyed immensely. We provided your food, clothing, laundry, petrol, aero engines, aircraft, transport, including bicycles, to name a few. The list is endless. It was a wonderful experience, one which helped me considerably when I became a civilian again. She didn't have the most glamorous or exciting job in the war, but if the podcast has taught me anything, it's a renewed appreciation for all the people behind the scenes who made it possible for the men at the front to win. They couldn't have done it without people like my nana. Thanks again, Lawrence Cox. Our next story this week is from Peter Miles. Actung, Actung, Al, James and the We Have Ways team. I wanted to share with you and the other listeners my mother's wartime experiences. Rebecca, or Betty as she was known, came from a Jewish family from London's East End, the youngest of nine. She joined the WAF just after her 18th birthday in August 1942. Having been brought up in a strict patriarchal family, the WAF was an exciting place to be, and she enjoyed every minute. After training and various postings, by September 1943, she was a leading aircraft woman based at RAF Cranford with 51 OTU. Her role was packing parachutes, a job she was very good at, as demonstrated by a letter she received from Flight Lieutenant Allsworth, writing from his hospital bed. To whom it may concern, I feel I must write and thank you for the care which must have been taken over the packing of my parachute. No words can express my feeling of relief when I saw it opening out above me, and no doubt you'll be pleased to hear that, thanks to your excellent work, I'm making a rapid recovery from my accident. I hope you won't be offended at the small gift I've enclosed in order for you to have a drink on me. I hope in the near future to have the opportunity of thanking you personally. The enclosed mention in the letter was a large white £5 note that was spent as directed by the flight lieutenant. Mum celebrated VE Day dancing in the street in nearby Bedford and was fined the next day for losing her cap. Demobbed in July 1946, she always remembered fondly her time in the WAF. Mum died last August, 80 years after joining the WAF. Keep up the good work, especially recording these family stories. Best wishes, Peter Miles. Our final story this week comes from Dina Pitzel. Dear gentlemen, thank you so much for the enjoyable, thought-provoking and intelligent podcast. I do not think I fit the mould of your standard listener, as I am an American woman with two kids. I plan to come to the festival this summer, and my tickets have been bought. My deep interest in World War II comes from my father, Label Zrodwitz. 
he arrived in the US from Poland aged three in 1927. His father, my grandfather, had come three years earlier and worked in a furniture warehouse earning enough money to bring over 14 relatives. They were Orthodox Jews and settled in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. In the spring of 1944, my father, who was barely 18, okay, maybe he was 17, joined the army and in his own words, wanted to get into the fight. He was deployed overseas to Europe in November 1944 with the 9th Infantry Division. Besides his age, what was unique about my dad was he wore a yarmulke while in the service. A yarmulke was worn by Orthodox Jewish men to cover their head. His dog tags identified him as Jewish, even though many soldiers chose not to have the H for Hebrew on their tags. There was nothing he was more proud of than being an American and being Jewish. Allow me to tell two stories about my dad's army experience. First, there is a character in Saving Private Ryan, played by Adam Goldberg, who's loosely based on my dad. The scene where Adam Goldberg taunts the German POWs, saying Juden, Juden, is actually based on a true story, but it happened in March 1945 in Germany. And it was my dad. One of the researchers for the film company got my father's name and contact information to validate the story. He said, yes, it was him, and I would do it again today. My dad and a few other Jewish soldiers in the 9th Infantry started a fight with POWs, for which the American Jewish soldiers were reprimanded. When my dad was able to go home in January 1947, he was sent by boat to the Brooklyn Navy Yards. When he got off the boat, his mother was waiting for him. She spoke very little English, and spoke to him only in Yiddish. She asked him to remove his army cap, as she was convinced he wasn't wearing his yarmulke. He at first refused, but no Jewish mother gives up that easily, and no Jewish boy can defy their mother. When he finally relented, what she did find were 15 stitches across his head from a bar fight on his last night in Europe. My dad was a man of great moral and physical strength who found success after the war in the New York real estate business. He was the strongest man many people ever met, and his army gave him the nickname Hercules. My dad died in 2001 and is missed every day. Thank you for reading his story. Dina Pitzel in Florida. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to us at wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members site under the Family Stories tab. That's a reminder, that's patreon.com slash we have ways. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>